0: Well, it is a privilege to preach all the time. Every time I share God's Word, it is always a joy to do so. And I really hope that you will be encouraged um, over the next months that lie ahead. And I do want to just say um, a couple of uh, precursor things in terms of the whole series before we start this morning. Um, It's called Family Matters. And my primary concern is to encourage you, right? And so if you're watching online, that's absolutely wonderful. Uh, but my primary concern is for this family and how we respond to the challenges of our culture and what that looks like for us as ordinary Christians just trying to make our way in the 21st century, right? So my primary concern is for you. So I'm not trying to solve all the problems of the world and all the challenges of the world. I hope to encourage you. Is that okay? That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is this. I'm aware that there are people of many different ages here and all different walks of life. So there are teenagers who are just starting out on their lives and discovering what it means to be a sexual being. There are people that have recently married and enjoying a marriage. There are people that have chosen not to be married and to live their life as a single person. There are people that have lost their spouses through divorce or through death. Some people have remarried. And in all those stages of our lives, we continue to be sexual beings. We continue to be men and women trying to work out our sexual lives in our culture in a pure and an honoring way. So I'm aware of all of that as well. And I'm trying to say there's no ways that in one message I can begin to say everything to touch every single person in every way. All right? But we hope over a period of time, over the remainder of this year, as we try and talk through some things. It's going to help you. What I'm also hoping is that it's going to help you in the conversations that you're having at home with your family and your kids and your loved ones. Uh, So that's also what I want to say. And um, is there a third thing I wanted to say? Probably not. If there is, it'll come up as I go. But this morning, I want to try and look at a very simply an introduction to what is going to come later in the year. I want to look at our sexuality, and I want to look at our culture. And I want to look at spirituality and how those three things tie together, all right? So just in general, um, if I think about our culture and I think of our sexual um, attitudes and our culture at the the moment, I would in general just say a couple of things. I think we still, we live in a, a culture of instant sexual gratification. So that means I want personal pleasure right now for myself, whatever it takes. That's largely the tone of our culture. Uh, Secondly, our culture has a disposable attitude towards sex. So what I mean by that is this. A woman as young as 15 now can get the morning after pill uh, over the counter in any pharmacy. So what we're saying to our young people is actually personal pleasure comes above responsibility. And actually, you can just deal with whatever the consequences are of your sexual behavior in a very easy way, just with a pill. And that's how you live your life. That's what our culture is saying. Our culture is consumeristic, exploitative, and it is expedient when it comes to sex. And here I talk, I think, particularly of Instagram, TikTok, other social media platforms, reality TV. Um, All of these things have radically influenced how people, especially young people, view themselves, how they see themselves. Uh, I'm 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 amazed how many you know on Instagram. I'm I'm part of the Instagram thing, but how many young people are fascinated every day to show a selfie, and now young men are taking their shirts off to show their abs, and young women are taking their blouses off and making sure you can see their breasts every time and every shot. And it's like people see themselves in a particular way through Instagram, TikTok, and unfortunately, reality TV has brought a whole lot of things into our homes that we wouldn't have faced many years ago. And this, of course, is affecting how we view sex, how we view our sexuality, and all of that has resulted in some serious distortions in our culture that we have to try and pick our way through as Christians in the 21st century, all right? And so here are some basic distortions that we still have to deal with and learn to, to deal with. And they are obvious, and you know them. I'm just reminding you of them. The first is sexism. Uh, sexism is still alive and well in our culture, and it's the strive to dominate a woman uh, by any means possible for men and to have people under your thumb. Sexism is rough. It's expressed in many different ways in our culture through wages that are paid to women. Women are still not paid equally for the same work that they do. What is that about? I don't know. It's taking years and years and years to change the most basic things in our culture. Sexism is still a fight that we have to fight. Secondly, history has a record of sad cruelty towards women, and uh, we have to do all that we can to, f- to fight that and to bring equality, especially in the church in terms of how we view ministry and what we do, that we are teamed team together, we are not enemies, we are partners, and we can look at that this morning, and arm in arm, we are bringing the kingdom from heaven to earth, yes, men and women together, absolutely. Thirdly, uh, secondly, the, one of the major drivers of our culture is pornography, and it is rife, it is everywhere, and again, the, the, what has changed from when I was growing up as a young man when I was at school, people would hand around pornographic magazines to each other. Now all you have to do is switch on your phone, and it is right in your home, right with you 24-7, and it's becoming an increasingly problem, a problem, not just for young men, but for women as well. Pornography is absolutely rife. And I'm not, I'm not naive enough to say that perhaps it's not even a problem for so many of you here that there's an unhealthy relationship that you have, and pornography is part of that. So I'm not here to debate what uh, what constitutes pornography. For me, there's a, a world of difference between the nude figures on the Sistine Chapel and internet porn that is available to people. But I do know this. There's a guy called Louis Smedes, and he says this about pornography. He says, Pornography is harmful... Because it makes sex so trivial, uninteresting, and dull. Let me say that again. Pornography is harmful because it makes sex so trivial, uninteresting, and dull. And that's the difference between art and pornography, is that actually pornography dehumanizes while true art lifts up and ennobles and makes things more beautiful. And so... This kind of world that we live in creates a fantasy world around pornography, and, and non, not, none of us can compete to what we are, are told we need to compete with. None of you girls can compete with the perfect breasts, the amazing figures, all of those things that are put onto social media and say, you must be like that. No man can compete with the bulging biceps, the perfect abs of the very few that spend all of their lives trying to look like that you know how much time goes into looking like this <laughs> it becomes your whole life and we are told that to be acceptable sexually we must look like that we must compete with these images of what is supposed to be the goal of what it means to be a sexual being in our culture and so I found this that sex in the real world is uh, uh do I need help my darling in this I don't. but anyway um Sex in the real world is a mixture of exhaustion and halitosis and uh, love, ecstasy, disillusionment, joy. This is what sex looks like in the real world with real people getting on day by day and living their lives together. And so we have to kind of extricate ourselves from this dream fantasy world that is presented to us day after day and reinforced over and over and over again. I mean, in the, we were just in Cambodia. Even in Cambodia, there are young women advertising makeup, uh, water products. Um, I mean, sex is used to advertise everything, isn't it? Cheese. I mean, what is a young woman got to do with cheese? I don't know, but but there's adverts. I mean, this is like, yes. You know what I mean? It's like it's everywhere, it's, uh, and so this kind of reinforces Thursday in our culture a sense of being sexually controlled by lust, and this is what I mean. I'm not talking about a fleeting glance that you might give at someone else. I'm talking about an appetite in your life that in every way is excessive, and I want to put it to you that our culture, its attitude towards sex is excessive and unhealthy. It's far too, far too much is made of it. And I know, I know this is um, an example that is perhaps a bit old, but it, it illustrates my point because C.S. Lewis was writing in the 50s and the 60s and he was talking about this distortion in our culture which was evident in his day but has got much, much worse. And so he used this illustration which I'm going to read to you now. He says this um, to, to talk about our, our sexual appetites in our culture. He says, take it this way. Perhaps you can get a large audience together for striptease to watch a girl undress on stage. Now suppose you came to a country where you could fill a whole theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so that everyone could see just before the lights go out that it contained a large mutton chop. Or piece of ham. Surely, surely you would think there was something wrong with the country's attitude in their appetite for food. And Lewis is right. In the same way, something has gone wrong with the sexual appetite of a culture and it's become a tremendous burden for so many people. And so I'm putting it to you this morning that there's a distortion in our culture around sex. It's a sex-soaked culture, and that's not going to change. The only thing that's going to change, that is the grace of God in our lives, the power of the gospel, and a grace-filled community helping every one of us to navigate through what is very, very difficult. And so I want to just start by... You know, sex is not new. (laughs) Sex has been around from the beginning of time, and we're going to look at that this morning. And we're going to look at, just to help us think a little bit, how cultures have tried to deal with some of these distortions around sexuality, because they've been around for hundreds and thousands of years. And so they're not, all these problems that we have in our culture and these challenges that we have in our culture are not just 21st century phenomenon. They're, all cultures have had to deal with sexual issues expressed in their culture from the beginning of time. In the Greek culture, in ancient Greece, there were all the excesses that we, you know, it always amuses me that people say, you know, it's, it was so different in the Bible times. You know, Paul and Jesus, they didn't have the same challenges as we do. I want to just say to you, if you think that, respectfully, go and read a little bit. Ancient Greece had rampant problems with sex and sexuality in its culture, particularly homosexuality, was a major thing in ancient Greek culture. Don't let people fool you and say it's all so different today. Actually, it's been the same for centuries, for thousands of years. In Roman culture, there was ritualized prostitution. There were sexual cults that were part of society. And if you go to Pompeii, you can still see sexual images all over the ruins of Pompeii, which speak about how the culture viewed sex and saw sex in the culture worked out. Nothing new under the sun. We know that Paul... Writes to the Corinthian church because there's sexual problems in the church. And he says, guys, we need to sort this out. We are Christians. Some of you were like this. Some of you were these things. And now you've been saved by the grace of God. And there's a transformation that's happening in your life. Now work it out. He writes to the Corinthian church. The letters largely deal with those issues. What about the letter to Ephesus also? Writes Paul, trying to engage with people to help them to navigate these issues in their culture. Yeah, in the UK in Victorian times, there was like a veneer of respectability, but underneath the underbelly of society, there was great immorality in the culture, and uh, a lot of television programs at the moment are uh, writing about that Victorian, um, expressing what it was like in that Victorian time um, that people were, were having to navigate. What about the 60s? The Beatles said, all you need is love. Yeah. Moral, free love without moral restraint, without moral guilt. That was, the, that was the cry of the 60s. And now we live in an increasingly complex world of shifting gender identity and the outworking of, of these things. And how we navigate that, particularly amongst the young, is a great, great challenge. Oh, yeah, that's what the third thing I wanted to say. The third thing I wanted to say is this, before we start addressing some of the challenges of what we face in the culture, what I want to do over the next couple of weeks is celebrate what the Bible does say about sex, and what the Bible does say about sexuality, and to actually, I hope you will see that it's an incredibly positive, celebratory view of sex in the Scripture. The scripture is not prudish. It's absolutely open and wonderful and celebrates the fact that we are sexual beings. None of you say amen to that. Gee, I want to say amen. Come on. That's such a cool thing. So here are some, some some of the responses that the church has had to try and help people through these sexual distortions over the centuries. Here are a couple that I want you to think about. The first was in monastic times, people took a vow of chastity. And now in our culture, I know people poke fun of that, but in, 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 in monastic times, chastity was more than just a negative word. It was renouncing of, um, a married way of life to embrace God. So it was called vacare deo, which means a vacancy in your life so that God can fill that place that you've made vacant. So that's how that's how chastity was was um, uh, thought about in monastic times. And um, Th- Thomas Aquinas was a famous um, Italian, uh, Italian friar and priest, and he coined that phrase "vacancy for God." And by that, he was trying to say that certain people choose to live a celibate life in order to open themselves so that God can speak to them in a way that they wouldn't be able to. Be done if they were married. Uh, Henry Nowen is another theologian that I really love. He says this: He says to be celibate means to be empty for God and to be free and open for His presence and to be available for His service. His service. So this is one of the ways that the church is trying to say, "Okay, we can we can deal with some of these issues." Unfortunately, in the in the recent history of our our world, there have been so many stories of painful sexual abuse, gross abuse at the hands of people where enforced celibacy has led to these kind of tra- tra- uh, tragedies in our culture and in churches. So, for thousands and thousands and thousands of people in the Catholic and other churches, they have had to endure sexual abuse because of an enforced celibacy. On clergy, and so I want to say that I'm fully aware of that, and it's been made even more painful by the by the cover up of the institutional church. It's even made it's just made it even more painful for people and unbearable for people that have had to endure those things. So celibacy is a calling that can never be imposed on people, and when it is imposed on people, it always has disastrous consequences. But I do want to say this. The idea behind what they were trying to say is that there's a reminder that there is a restraint in our lives that we can live with that helps us to counter self-indulgence and sexual excess in a world that is fascinated by self-indulgence and sexual excess. There is a restraint that you can live with in your life that is a godly thing. Yeah. Secondly. Faithfulness. You might have heard of the Puritans. The Puritans were uh, in the seventeenth and eighteenth century, and now we use this word Puritan to make fun of people that we think are sexually uh, constrained. Are oh, you such a Puritan? You know, have a little bit of more levity in your life. You know, don't be so Puritanical about sex. In other words, the culture uses that to poke fun at people. Say you're really uptight about sex. You're like a Puritan. Well, actually, I want to say that the Puritans have been. Seriously, seriously um, misrepresented, and they, they really did seek a basis in their lives for Christian marriage, and their conviction was that companionship was the primary purpose of marriage, and within that, a healthy sexual relationship was absolutely vital. And I want to put it to you that we can learn from that, that in our marriages and in our lives, as we court with each other and as we seek to move forward in whatever stage of our lives we are. We can have a healthy sexual relationship as we do that. And we can learn to navigate in a healthy way what God has for us. And we can value the right things. So those were two positive responses that the church has practiced over the years. Yes, some negative ones because I think it's good that we look at some negative things as well. And these arose... After the apostolic age, after the early apostles in the first 400 years of, of the church history, there was a guy called Augustine. Anyone heard of Augustine? All right. Augustine of Hippo. He was a North African. He, he lived in uh, what was called Numidia, which is kind of, he was born in modern-day Algeria. And outside of the New Testament writers, Augustine is probably the most influential early Christian writer of the first four or five hundred years of the church he is absolutely without a doubt now he was he grew up in a very privileged home and he was uh, trained at a high level educational level uh, from a very young age but one of the things that augustine also lived was a debauched life he was promiscuous as a young man he took a mistress when he was studying in carthage that he wasn't married to he lived with her for 10 years Uh, He had children by her, and he lived this kind of very debauched life. And then he got saved later in his life. And he wrote a whole lot of books that have been absolutely influential in in the Christian faith. But one of the things that he did so, unfortunately, into the Christian uh, church is that physical pleasure is bad. So, for Augustine, he even said, When a married couple have sex, he called it a venial sin. In other words, it doesn't separate you from God, but you really shouldn't do it. All right? So he sewed this thing into uh, Christian kind of thinking that somehow physical pleasure, sexual pleasure is to be frowned upon. And that is still how many people think Christians view sex, that it's somehow a little bit, you know, it's okay, but only do it when you have to. Only do it when you want kids. You know, don't get too much pleasure from sex because that's somehow ungodly. You see and an Augustine has to bear some responsibility for that. Um, the, the, the second negative thing is that sexual uh, un, uh, intercourse was, is reserved only for procreation. That's the other negative thing that the church has put on people. And there was a guy, again, called uh, one of the early ch- uh, church uh, Leaders, a guy called Yves Chartreux, who was a French guy, and um, he said this: Uh, He said the Holy Spirit leaves the room when you engage in intercourse. And I'm not—I'm quoting him right now. This is what he counselled his people. He said, even if you're married, when you have sex with your wife, you make love. Holy Spirit leaves the room, right? He said this: Abstain on Thursdays in remembrance of Christ's rapture. Abstain on Fridays in remembrance of Christ's crucifixion, on Saturdays, in honor of the Virgin Mary, on Sundays, in commemoration of Christ's resurrection, and on Mondays, out of respect for the dead. (laughs) So I guess these people were really, really busy on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. (laughs) That's the only days they were left, all right? So, so here, here are some of the things that the church has tried to help people with some of them being helpful, some of them being very unhelpful. Now, I want to land today on a biblical view of sex and sexuality and really try and encourage you because this is what, uh, there's a theologian called Donald Gergson, Ger- 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 and he says this, sexuality and spirituality are not enemies, but friends. Sexuality and spirituality are not enemies. They are friends. To, be, to celebrate what God has given you as a man or woman in a sexual relationship with someone in marriage is a beautiful and a spiritual and a godly and a holy thing that you should celebrate and enjoy. I want sexual relationships in this church to be healthy and flourishing because it's a gift to us. Come on. Say amen. Thank you. Say amen. And one of the great tragedies of Christian history is that sexuality has been divorced from spirituality when, in fact, the Bible holds human sexuality in the highest regard and celebrates it. Absolutely. And so, I want to remind you of this magnificent view of sex that we have in Genesis chapter 2, and it says... God majestically creates the whole universe by his spoken word, his creative word, and all things that we know and see have come into being by the power of God's spoken word. And at the very apex, the very pinnacle of his creation, he puts human beings. And they are set apart from all of the other creation because it says in Genesis 2, it says, we are made in the image of God. The the Latin word is imago Deo, the the image of God. Of God, and people have debated for centuries what it means to be created in the image of God. What does that look like? What does that mean for you and me when we say we are created in the image of God? Well, one of the things, one of the things that is absolutely plain from Genesis 2 um, and Genesis uh, 1 sorry, 27 is that our sexuality is incredibly closely related to us being created in the image of God. Why do I say that? Because Genesis 1.27 says this: God created mankind in His own image. Comma, in the image of God, said again, He created them. Comma, male and female He created them. Part of us being created in God's image is that we were created male and female and part of that implies that we have this incredible privilege to have relationship with each other male and female together and part of that is expresses what it means to be created in the image of God is that we are capable of love and relationship with each other which is profound the bible places sexuality right at the pinnacle of god's creation he created them in his image Male and female, he created them. And so the origin of our sexuality, that we are created different, is that we are created in God's image, which implies at the very center of what it means to be human is that you are able to have relationship. It's not just an accidental arrangement so that we can populate the earth. This is at the very center of what it means to be a human being is that you are unable to have relationship with another person, male and female. And so the problem with pornography, the problem with reality TV, the problem with Instagram culture is not that it stresses sex too much, it's that it stresses sex too little. It doesn't really think about it. It says that sex is my genitals, on Helen's genitals, and that is sex. That's, that's what it is. It's a physical thing. It's no more than that. It's not, it's not connected to who I am as a human being. It's not connected to my spiritual life with God. It's just a physical thing. And the Bible says sex is infinitely higher, more noble than that. It's part of who you are have been created in the image of God is the fact that you can relate to someone in that way. It is it is higher than genital sex. So much more. And our culture doesn't think about sex enough, thinks too little about sex. I want to encourage you to think in a much less trivial, much broader, much fuller, much greater, much more lovely way about what sexual relationship looks like yeah thirdly sex is good god created he created us in his image and thirdly the bible says sex is absolutely good it's it's to create adam it says in genesis 2 7 the Lord God formed a man from the dust out of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Yeah, that's how it says. God, it's interesting that, you know, the, the Bible's full of fun word plays, and in ancient Hebrew, um, uh, there were often intentional word plays. And so the word for, for man is Adam. The word for ground is Adama. So, you know, we have these... Um, you know, science fiction movies call uh, earthling, you know. Well, actually, in the Hebrew, that's quite accurate because that's what it says. It's a play on the words. We are earthlings. We are made from the earth. Uh, Adam. Adama. They're very, very similar words. And so we, 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 we could say, if we wanted to communicate um, that in a modern translation, we might say that the man, Adam, we can translate as earthling and the ground from which he was made as earth, but that's just a little aside. So when when God creates Eve, though, he doesn't speak her into being as just part of the creation, like he did with the universe, and he doesn't do the same thing as he did with Adam. He He doesn't breathe into his life into the dust of the earth. We see something incredibly beautiful that God does to show this complete independence of man and woman together. In Genesis 2, verse 7, Adam says this of Eve. Do you remember what he says? He says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The biblical picture is that Adam, uh, the, his rib is removed and out of that, God creates this beautiful companion for him, woman. And so right in the very beginning of the celebration of sexuality in the Bible. There's an interdependence between man and woman. They are interwoven. They are interdependent. They are interlaced. They are not enemies. They are not rivals. There's no There's no um, hierarchy. There's no independent autonomy. There's no competition. These two people are bone of their bone and flesh of flesh. They are interlocked it's incredibly stunning see that's why we were talking as elders you know one of the oh that's the other thing I want to say if you have questions we're going to leave a box at the back of the uh, auditorium write your questions down if you have any questions and we'll try and answer them over the next weeks or if you want to mail online ask anything at foresttownchurch.org. you can ask any question you have Uh, anonymously and we will try and answer it as we um, go through the series. We're talking about masturbation and how that's an issue in our culture and um, why do Christians say that that is a problem, to give yourself a lifestyle of pornography and masturbation. All right? So here's the old-fashioned word for masturbation, is sex solitaire. It means you're having sex by yourself. You see, for me, that's like, it's not thinking enough about sex. It's thinking too little of sex. It's saying that having sex is looking at a pornographic image and using your hand to bring gratification to your body. It's such a low view of sex. Why? Because the Bible says that actually there's this high regard and there's an independence you It's not sex solitaire. It's something that you enjoy with another human being who is deeply committed to you, and you are deeply committed to them. And that's what the sexual act is. Do you get what I'm saying? There's an interdependence between men and women that the Bible celebrates. Highly, in an incredible way. Secondly, there's a a vulnerability that the Bible celebrates in Genesis 2.25. I love this verse. It says, The man and the woman were naked, and they were not ashamed. How beautiful is that? This is before the fall, people. There's erotic love in this, between this man and woman before the fall. And before the fall, it says they were naked, and they did not know any shame. And after the fall, everything gets distorted broken, becomes ugly, but before the fall, it says they were naked and they did not know any shame. So there's this wonderful picture of integration, wholeness, and there's no shame because there's wholeness in their relationship. Are you with me? Thirdly, fourthly, there's intimacy, which I've, uh, which I've um, mentioned already. There's this kind of sexual eroticism before the fall, and that, that was only distorted after the fall. Um, lastly, biblical sexuality is an absolute celebration of love. And love li- lives a life for others. It meets the needs of others before it meets its own needs. And that's only fully possible when you know God is ultimately the meter of all of your needs. And uh, I want to just land on Song of Solomon. All right? Have you read Song of Solomon? You want some good bedtime reading? Go read Song of Solomon. What an amazing, joyful expression of love and of sexual love in the Bible. And so there are four great themes. As you go and read this week, look for these things. The first is intensity. Basically, it shows how intense love is within a Christian union. And the singer of the song goes to great lengths to Add one superlative on top of the other to show the extravagance of this couple's love for each other. And so, for example, I've just chosen a couple of scriptures I'd like to read. So in uh, chapter 2, verse 3, for example, it says, um, Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved amongst the young men. I delight to sit in his shade. His fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me into the banqueting hall and let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples. I am faint with love. His left arm is under my hand, my head, and his right arm embraces me. It's a picture of making love in the most celebratory way possible. Without shame, without it's just this intense picture of what the Bible says love looks like between a man and a woman. Another woman. Another point in the, in the story, the woman is in bed. She's longing for her lover who she, she can't find. She gets up in the middle of the night, and she roams around the streets looking for him. And chapter 3, it says this in verse 2, All night long, I looked for the one that my heart loves. I looked for him, but I did not find him. I'll get up now, and I'll go about the city through its streets and squares. I will search for him because I love him. So I looked for him, and I could not find him. There's this longing, this intensity in this woman. For the man that she loves. And then it says in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 4, Scarcely had I passed when I found the one that my heart loves. I held him. I would not let him go until I brought him into my mother's house to the room of the one who conceived me. In other words, to the bedroom. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and the does of the field. Do not arouse love or awaken love until... It so desires. And here is the great key for young people, old people, middle aged people, people that have intense feelings of love for someone else. And physically, you just want to be with them and you want to make love to them. And you just, oh, it's so difficult and you want to hold yourself back. Because the Bible says, do not arouse love or awaken love until the time is. Right. Our culture says every moment is right. Don't need to wait. Just have sex as often as you can with as many people as you can. That's not a biblical view of restraint because love restrains itself until it's exactly the right time. True love does. And so that's why this phrase goes through all Song of Solomon. If you can read it yourself, it says over and over again, I charge you by the gazelles and doze of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. So here we have the first thing, the intensity of love. Secondly, we have the restraint of love, which I've already, I've already hinted at. There's no crudeness. When you read Song of Songs, there's no pawing. There's no kind of lasciviousness. There's no crudeness at all. Why, wow, because it views sex as such a hard thing, it's too deep for that. It's too, it's too um, uh, honorable for that. And so in, in, Luke, in, in um, chapter eight, verse eight, uh, the woman remembers her brothers as a child asking her to keep herself pure. Uh, and the picture is here, they ask her. The brothers ask her, "Are you an open door for anyone?" That's what they ask her. And they say this: "We have a little sister. Her breasts are not yet grown. What shall we do for our sister on the day that she is spoken for? In other words, that day when she's going to be married. If she has a wall, we will build towers of silver on her. If she's a door, we will enclose it with panels of cedar. In other words, there's a lesson of restraint that this young woman is having to learn, she's having to hold herself back until the right time, And then, when we read in the, on, the, on, on the, the picture of the marriage day, um, chapter 8 verse 10, the, the woman who's now fully matured and is ready to be married, she says this, "My breasts are like towers. I've become like that in his eyes to bring contentment." So this absolute celebration of her sexuality. She's going to enjoy this moment because she's waited for what's the right. Um, Time And so this, this, she's not given into unrestrained passion. She's learned this lesson of restraint. And the man also learns that lesson. Yeah? In chapter 6, verse 3 and verse 8, he too has learned to refuse to be rushed and to hold himself back. And it says this. Uh, he, he says 60 queens there may, may be, 80 concubines. In other words, I have a lot of choice here. There's a lot of women. And virgins beyond number, but my dove, my love, my perfect one is unique. The only daughter of a mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. There's an honoring of the man, of this precious, precious gift to him, and he holds himself back until the right time. So, the Bible is full of passion. It's full of intensity. It's full of love. It's an erotic passion. is celebrated. But there's always an exclusivity to it between two human beings that are committed to each other, that are made in the image of God. And so, I love the language. Uh, when uh, you get to the wedding scene in, in chapter 4, verse 12, um, this is how the man describes his bride. He says, You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. And then in, in chapter 4, verse 16, the woman says this. She says, Awake, north wind, come blow in my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruit. I mean, you don't have to be very bright to, to understand what they're talking about. There's an absolute celebration of the sexual union that they're about to to enjoy. And so, There's this thing of the intensity of love, the restraint of love, and that is why I personally have such a aversion, hatred I would even use to reality TV. To you being able to see someone that you don't know, in some location, somewhere, on some island, somewhere, having sex with someone or whatever the thing is, it, it's, it's absolutely vile. It takes you where you have no right to go and observe anything. This is a moment, between, uh, scripturally, biblically, sex is a moment between a man and a woman who are absolutely committed to each other and it is a union The picture is always an enclosed garden that the two people are in that is closed out from anyone else and you have no right to go and have a look what anyone else is doing. So, I'm landing there's a third thing I want to say. There's a mutuality in terms of a biblical celebration of sexuality. Song of Sons. I want to go to, again, go and read it. It's not a dull story of a man initiating and a dutiful wife responding, all right? Or vice versa. This is a story of two people absolutely intensely involved, both initiating, both receiving, and the response of, of the woman, for example, um, In uh, chapter 1, verse 13, to her beloved, she says, My beloved is to me a sasha of myrrh resting between my breasts. My beloved to me is a cluster of henna uh, blossoms of the vineyard from En Gedi. There's this kind of language which is absolutely celebratory of everything that is possible. And uh, look how she describes her her. Beloved, in chapter 2, my beloved is a gazelle, a young stag. Look, there he stands behind the wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My beloved spoke, said, and said to me, arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. This absolute celebration, both parties, no one holding back, both initiating, both receiving, both celebrating. It's beautiful. And lastly, fourthly, (laughs) there's a permanence to this kind of love that the bible celebrates absolute permanence there's no running away when the bills are difficult to pay there's no running away when the man gets a beer belly and doesn't work out so well anymore no running away there's a there's a there's a absolute permanent Intense, passionate commitment to this human being that God has given to you as a gift to celebrate and to share. And that's why Song of Solomon finishes with this, chapter 8, verse 6, says this. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death Its jealousy is unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire. Many waters cannot quench it. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would utterly be scorned. There's a sense of absolute permanence, ongoing love that is strong and mutual and initiating And intense, and that's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 what is one of the things that he says about love, a true characteristic of love? Love never ends. Why does he say that? He's saying the same thing. Love never ends. When God connects you with a person in this kind of way, it doesn't end, there's a permanence to it. I'm sure there are many times that Helen has wanted to kill me, throw me out the window. All that stuff. But love never ends. Biblically, this is what the scripture celebrates. They are in it together. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. Until death, us do part. That's it. Our culture says, oh no, it's not convenient to throw it away. One, two, three, four, five, as many as you like. Husbands, wives, over the course of your life. You know, what's the, what's the phrase? Uh, serially monogamous, isn't it? Yeah, you know, you, you, are, you are committed to one person for a period of time, and then you're committed to another, and then another, and then another. Uh, the Bible doesn't speak of it like that. Now, you might say, Ant, this is too difficult. How can I ever live like this? This is just, the bar is too high. I want to say, It's possible. Because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And he gives you power to overcome all things. He gives you power. He says, I'm with you. If you need anything, cry to me and I will be with you. Perhaps you are struggling with pornography. You can overcome that by the power of the Holy Spirit and the counsel of friends and people standing with you and the love of the church. You can overcome that. Perhaps you've come from a pr- promiscuous background and you, you've done stuff that you wish you hadn't done. Your sins are removed from you as far as the east is from the west and what was as scarlet is now as white as snow. There's a new beginning. You are a new creature in in Christ and the old is gone and the new has come. This is the power of the gospel. You can be transformed. Perhaps you're starting out in life and saying, God, uh, how, how do I even navigate going forward? How do I find someone to share my life with? All things are possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's with you. He will help you. And we will look at some of the challenges later in terms of our culture, how we think about those, how we respond to them. What about marriage? How does that look? All those things. We will look at those things. But I want you to, and singleness, absolutely. How do do we navigate all these seasons of our lives? My, My motivation this morning is just to Get you to celebrate what the Bible does say about sex and sexuality. Too many people think that Christians are concerned with what we shouldn't be doing. I want to encourage you to enjoy what the Bible says we should be doing within the boundaries that God gives us. And to celebrate that with all our hearts and to love each other passionately, permanently, intensely, with all that we can because He's a good God and a good Father. He's given this amazing, amazing gift to us as human beings that are created in His image. Amen? Let me pray for you guys. And girls. (laughs) Father, we want to thank You for the, the power of Your Scripture. We want to thank You... For every good thing that you've done for us, thank you that you created us in your image. Thank you for what that means, that we are capable of relationship with you, with each other. Thank you for the beauty of what you've given us in sexual love. Thank you, Lord, for the celebration of that in your words, the high regard that it's held in, and I pray, Lord, as, as individuals, whatever stage of life that we are in, that you would help us to hold our sexuality in high regard, to celebrate it as you celebrate it. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of people in our lives to help us, to walk with us, to um, journey through life with. Thank you for the joy of what that means as we have relationship with each other. And in particular, Lord, we ask that you'd help us to navigate through our culture, in such a complex world of what it means to be a sexual being. Help us to understand, help us to get your heart, help us to see how we can live and how we can help each other to navigate these challenges in a godly way with purity and honoring you in everything that we do. And so we bless you, Lord. We thank you for your kindness in our lives. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for reaching into our lives and transforming us and giving us a whole new hope and a whole new future. And we bless you for what you're doing. I want to pray, Lord, that this church would be known for healthy, healthy relationships in every every area, Uh, parents with children, children with each other, husbands and wives, grannies, grandpas, all relating together in a healthy way because of what you've done in us, and we trust you for that, in the precious name of Jesus, everyone says, amen.